On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples. After the meal had ended, before heading out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where he was to be arrested, Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel tell us that they sang a hymn. They sang a hymn. The Passover custom was to sing from what became known as the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. Hallel from Hallelujah means they are psalms of praise. And the designation Egyptian is because they came to be associated with the celebration of Passover. The Egyptian Hallel Psalms are Psalms 113 through 118 in your English Bible. So it's quite possible, right, that our text this morning, which is Psalm 116, was sung on that night. At the very least, we can say this, it was closely associated with what was sung, and it was seen as an appropriate psalm to sing at the Passover. This psalm, then, is certainly relevant to our series on the Lord's Supper, which Jesus instituted that night, and to the suffering, the coming suffering he was about to endure. So what I'd like to do this morning is use Psalm 116, Psalm 116 as a a meditation on what we will call the three cups, three cups. They're there on the outline in your bulletin. Um, So the first cup. So the psalmist in Psalm 116, has experienced some kind of deliverance. Right? He, he called upon God in the midst of what appears to be a threat of dying. He was in great distress. He was in sorrow. You can, you can hear the pathos in the language. He says, the cords of death entangled me. And the anguish of the grave came over him. And he cried out, that sort of basic, visceral cry of the people of God for through the ages, Lord, save me. And God was merciful. God heard his cry. And our Lord, in his tender compassion, restored the psalmist to rest and to safety. And here he's memorializing this deliverance. He remembers his grief. He remembers the threat of the grave. And you can hear the relief, the the sigh of relief in the psalm when he says this, You have delivered my soul from death, and my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. It's a good thing to be alive, the psalmist says be upright in the land of the living. And he wants to express this gratitude in some concrete way. And so, in verse 12, he says this. He says, what shall I render to the Lord? Like, how can I repay the Lord for all of his goodness, for all of his benefits to me? God's goodness, God is good, He diffuses his goodness. We saw this in the series on God. 
God's goodness has made him a debtor. And in gratitude, what he seeks to do is to return something or to offer up thanks and praise to God. We are drawn to God first and foremost by this goodness, this beauty, this moral excellence, this sweetness of God. He pours his fatherly goodness out on us in love. He guards and defends us in thousands of ways we're not even perceptibly aware of. So we might call this first cup the cup of God's goodness. The cup of God's goodness. And it's a cup right, with wide dimensions because it pours itself out over the whole of our lives. Psalm 23 famously says, His goodness and His mercy follow us all the days of our lives. Even the days of great distress and the days of terror and the days of darkness and the days of perplexity and the days of confusion and grief, even the days of tragedy and the days of sorrow, the goodness of God is unstinting goodness. He is our shepherd, our pastor, and he prepares a table before us in the presence of life's enemy. He prepares that table before us in the presence of life's enemies. The psalmist says he anoints our head with oil. And Psalm 23 continues, our cup, our cup, the cup of God's goodness to us overflows. Regardless of how we feel, regardless of how our week or our month or our year has been. God's goodness is poured out on you, and it overflows. You can't number the benefits. So this first cup is the cup of God's goodness. But in the context of this cup, we come to another cup in verse 13. There the psalmist says, I will lift up the cup of salvation, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. Right, so, so this cup of salvation... The cup of salvation has very clear connections to that cup, right, of which we will soon partake. But I want to come back to this cup of salvation because it's actually the third cup in my outline, right, not the second. So between the cup of God's general profuse goodness to us, right, the cup that runneth over in our lives, and that cup of salvation, there lies a second cup. Between the cup of God's goodness and the cup of salvation lies a second cup. So you might know, you might remember that earlier in the Gospels, in fact, we heard this in our Gospel lesson, which I read, right? The mother of Jesus' two disciples, James and John, asked Jesus if her sons could sit at his right hand and his left hand in his kingdom. These are theologians of glory and victory. These are lovers of power and authority. What a question by their mother, no less. In their eyes, though, what could be wrong? I mean, after all, we're focused on Jesus' throne and his kingdom and reigning with him. 
And aren't we promised these good things? And Jesus answers, by the way, you can tell if you look at Mark's gospel, he answers both the mother and the two sons. And he says this, we heard it again in the lesson, you don't know what you're asking. That's stinging, right? Like you are clueless, Jesus says. And then he says this, can you drink the cup? That's the middle cup. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? And they say, in what might be the most arrogant, unself-aware thing ever said, we are able. Sure, we can drink it. Here the cup, what we're calling the second cup, refers to the unspeakable horrors he's soon to undergo on the next day, on Good Friday. This cup is his destiny to bear the sins of the world as the spotless Lamb of God. And you'll recall that later, right, in Gethsemane, right, he's in anguished prayer, great drops of blood, sweating. His soul is distressed, we're told, sorrowful to the point of death. And the words he uses there to describe the state of his soul indicate revulsion at the prospect of the severity of what he's about to endure. And there, while the disciples kept falling asleep, these throne sitters are now sleeping, Three times, three times, he says to the Father, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as your will be done. So Jesus is already, even before the cross, drinking from what we are calling the second cup. Right? But he will drain it fully at the crucifixion. Right, for this cup, right, the cup of his passion is the cup of God's just wrath. His good hatred for his curse upon our sin. This cup is what the book of Revelation calls the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. This cup is the holy love of God saying no to human rebellion, to the monstrosity of evil, and dealing with it decisively in the person of his son. And it is Jesus' fidelity in drinking that cup which makes that cup, right? the cup which memorializes his death, it makes that cup the cup of salvation. He drinks the second cup, that we might drink that cup. And in the night of his betrayal, right, the night his suffering commences in its final chapter, he expressly connects the two cups. Right? That is, he connects the cup of Calvary with that cup. Because at the Passover meal, he gives thanks, he takes bread, and he says, This is my body given for you. Then he takes the cup, 
This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. In this way, the Apostle Paul tells us, in this way, we proclaim that death. The supper is a proclamation of this death until the Lord comes. So the cup of Jesus' suffering creates the cup of that table. And the cup of that table keeps the memory of Jesus' suffering and the salvation that flows from it. It keeps it alive in the church to the end of the age. Jesus leaves us these symbols. He could have left us an empty tomb to put on the table. He could have left a throne. He could put a little throne there, maybe a scepter, maybe a crown. What he leaves us is a broken body and spilled blood. Something James and John and their mother do not understand. So let's look then at that cup, the third cup. This cup is, verse 13 calls it this, the cup of salvation. The salvation is procured because Jesus drank that second cup. And of this cup, the Apostle Paul says, is not the cup which we bless, the cup which we offer thanksgiving over, a communion, a participation in the blood of Christ? And we'll see in a minute. If you want communion in the blood, you're going to get communion not only in the cleansing forgiveness of the blood, but in the suffering that produced the blood. Verse 17, the psalmist calls the cup of salvation a thank offering, a sacrifice of gratitude. The cup of thanksgiving, the cup of salvation, is the cup of thanksgiving. So we've said it before, but I want to repeat it because I want everyone to know this. Eucharist, right, that's sometimes a word we use for the supper. Sometimes we call this the Lord's Supper. Sometimes we call it communion. Sometimes we call it the Eucharist. They're all the same, except Eucharist means thanksgiving. It points out the fact that the supper is an an act of thanksgiving. So we have three cups in this text. We have the cup of God's goodness. We have the cup of God's grace that Jesus bore for us. And then we have the cup of gratitude in response to that gospel grace. That table is a sacrifice. But it is not Christ being sacrificed again. It is, in the beautiful words of our confession, a spiritual oblation, meaning an offering, a spiritual offering, of all possible praise to God for Christ's once and for all sacrifice. So for all of his benefits to us, benefits in creation, benefits in redemption, we take the cup of salvation... And we offer up thanksgiving, a spiritual oblation to God in the highest heavens. So we can now answer the psalmist's earlier question when he asked this, what shall I render to the Lord? This is what we render to the Lord for all of his goodness toward us. We render the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, there's a couple other things I want us to notice in Psalms 116. Notice in verse uh, 13 and in verse 17, the psalmist says he will call upon the name of the Lord. This phrase, 
refers to public worship. Calling upon the name of the Lord is a corporate thing in the Hebrew Bible. Taking the cup of salvation, the cup of thanksgiving, is a public act. It's an act of the church. It's an act of the communion of the saints. So notice also then, notice also, that verses 14 and verses 18, verses 14 and 18, are identical in the text. And they refer to this action of gratitude taking place in the presence of all of God's people. And then it's expanded into the courts of the house of the Lord. So it's a public action that we're talking about. But then, interestingly, in both places, the psalmist says this, I will fulfill my vows to the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord. So lifting up the cup of salvation and vowing go hand in hand. Here's Psalm 50 on this. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. I think this is often missed or obscured in theologies of the Supper. In the Supper... We are publicly fulfilling a vow. What vow, you might ask? The vow of discipleship, which is entailed in Christian baptism. That's what vow. So think of it this way. Think of it this way. This is the new covenant in Christ's blood. In covenants in the Bible, oaths and vows are involved. God pledges himself to you here, and we in return publicly pledge our allegiance to him. Right? At the heart of the covenant is oath-taking. In fact, it's interesting, right? The, the word sacrament, the Latin word, originally simply meant oath. That's what a sacrament was. It was the oath taken by a Roman soldier upon enlisting, pledging obedience to his superior. Among other reasons, this is why we profess our faith before coming to the table. What a person says when they come to the table is, I have now publicly, personally, embraced the vows that were sealed onto my life in baptism. This is why we have two sacraments, not one. This is why the sacraments are ordered to each other in a certain way. Right? They're different. Baptism seals an oath onto your life. The supper is you saying, I've embraced that oath, and I am willing to pledge that oath publicly. In fact, right, the confession of faith, right, the creed, which we say as we move toward the supper, right, after the word, we have the, either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. That confession was viewed by Calvin as an oath. Right? So in confessing the creed, you are saying, I personally, I publicly embrace the Trinitarian faith of the church. Right? By the way, this is why the church is not looking simply for a minimalistic, I believe in Jesus confession. It's really not about what you believe first and foremost. What is confessed there is the public faith of the body of Christ, the faith of the church. So that's why the creed is used. 
The creed is saying, I now embrace my baptismal vows and I pledge to live and die in this faith. So that's what we're saying. When we say the creed, we are saying, I publicly pledge to live and to die in this faith. Right? And if one cannot intelligently do that, one should not come to the supper. The whole liturgy is ordered to bring you here, but it's ordered in a certain way. Right? The confession of sins requires that we examine our conscience and repent of our sins. The reading and preaching of the word requires that we embrace the gospel. And the, re- the creed requires that we personally and publicly embrace the faith of the church. And then you come here and say, I want the benefits of the new covenant, and I publicly assume the obligations of the new covenant. So there's a deep structure and a logic to why there are two sacraments and how the two sacraments relate to one another. So here we are vowing, right? We are vowing in the new covenant to cling to Jesus Christ, to assume the obligations of children of God in the new covenant. To deny ourselves, to take up the way of the cross, to follow him, to love as he's loved us. Right? The cup which we bless is a communion in the blood of Christ, and thus it draws us into the mystery of the cross. So again, here we vow, fulfilling the oath sealed on us in our baptism to follow that pattern of life. We'll see this more in the next couple of sermons in this series. The pattern of Jesus' lowliness in drinking that second cup. Now, one place you can see this connection is in our closing hymn, which picks this up. A parting hymn we, we sing, number 431, has this opening verse. It says, A parting hymn we sing around your table, Lord. Again, our grateful tribute bring. That's the thanksgiving, right? And our solemn vows record. Right? You are publicly recording that you have embraced your baptismal vows there. And that you've, in embracing them, you embrace the public, creedal faith of the church. Right? So, here then, Jesus reminds us that while he alone is the sin bearer, he alone is the sin bearer, we drink of the cup that he drank. In suffering with him, we are pledging to live and to die in the faith at the supper. It is not too grim to say that if you are unwilling to be a martyr, you should not come to the supper. Right? So we're affirming what the psalmist says in verse 16. He says, truly I am your servant, Lord. You can see that down in verse 16. Servants of the one who became our servant in drinking the cup, the second cup. This is the greatest servitude of all, right? It's not slavish. This servitude is paradoxically perfect freedom. In being bound and being chained as slaves to Christ, we are, as the psalmist says in verse 16, loosed from our bonds. This slavery, this oath-bound binding to Jesus Christ in that way of life is the deepest form of human liberty, the deepest liberation. And so the table sets before us the paradox of Christian existence, which is completely lost on James and John and their mother. Freedom in service, life in death, power in weakness, glory in suffering, conquest in being conquered, treasure in jars of clay. 
And this leads to one last thing I want to point out. In the middle of this reflection on the third cup, the psalmist inserts a somewhat puzzling verse. It's verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. He's been delivered from death. But had he died, his death, like the death of all the godly, would have been noted and precious in the eyes of the Lord. But in the context of that cup and the context of this whole psalm, I'd like to suggest another way of reading verse 15. And it's not novel to me. It's a way a wide swath of the church has historically read verse 15. And they've read it, precious in the eyes of the Lord is the death of his saints. They've read it as referring to martyrdom. Now, this is not as strange as it might seem. It follows from all that we've said. That cup calls us to die. It calls us to follow that way of self-giving. Again, Jesus did not leave us a throne. Or, perhaps put differently, he left us a crucified throne, a cruciform throne. So the cup of thanksgiving is the cup which calls us all to daily little martyrdoms. Right? It does, right? That Jesus, Paul says, I die daily. Jesus says, unless you're willing to take up your cross daily, right? Martyrdom is of the essence of Christian existence. Sometimes it leads in dying to the faith, for the faith. It may, and it often does, and it still does in many places in the world, call those who drink that cup with gratitude, who vow to live out the new covenant, to actual physical martyrdom. But it's of the essence of Christian existence to see this because we are all Paul says, drink offerings. We live as already slaughtered. That's what a living sacrifice is. A living, slaughtered being. If if you read Romans 8, and it talks about how in Christ we're more than conquerors. What does Paul say there? He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Everybody remembers that, and they remember this. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know what everybody forgets? The verse in between, where Paul says this, As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Slaughtered, sheep-like cruciformity, is conquest in this age. We'd like it to be other other than that. James and John want it to be other than that. Their mother wants it to be other than that. Right? We are the community of martyrs. You become what you eat, and we are to become that. So the death of Jesus, his drinking of the cup, makes our deaths pledged in drinking that cup, precious in the Lord's sight. His precious blood makes our blood, even our bloody deaths, precious. Now let me remind you in closing that in the conversation with James and John, after they said we're able to drink the cup, what does Jesus say? I can tell you what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, don't worry about drinking the cup, I'll drink it for you. He says, you will drink my cup. Well, that's not what we wanted to hear. 
it, it turns out that that cup of Golgotha is just not something you can stand at a distance from and get all the benefits from it. You will drink my cup, he says to them. Not, like, not that we're co-redeemers with him. That's not what he means. But somehow we're drawn into the mystery of the cross. So, so much so that Paul can say that in my sufferings, I fill up what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And your sufferings are not just random sufferings, but they are the sufferings of Christ in the members of his own body. All the disciples of Christ, in drinking that cup, pledged to drink of and partake of Jesus' dreadful cup. Let me say that again. All the disciples of Christ in drinking that cup are pledging and vowing publicly to live and, if necessary, to die in the apostolic faith embodied in the creed and thus to partake of and, if necessary, to drink of Jesus' dreadful cup. This is the cup of salvation. This is the cup of thanksgiving. And yes... With everything we've said, it is still the cup of joy. Because this is the only kind of joy there is. Dreadful joy, glorious joy, trembling joy, mysterious joy, cruciform joy. That's indestructible resurrection joy. That's the form we get it in, in this age. This is the text that Jesus, and note well, note well, James and John and the others possibly sang as he went forth to drink his cup. Let us be the singers of this text as well. Amen.